audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Preaching text this morning is Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. We're in week three of our sermon series, kind of unpacking our vision statement as a church. If you've missed any previous weeks, I encourage you to go back and listen to those. But that vision statement, just by way of reminders, the Emmanuel Church desires to be a diverse family of disciples living to make the real Jesus known in Birmingham and beyond. And this week we're going to be unpacking that middle statement there, making the real, living to make the real Jesus known. And so we're going to use Acts chapter 4 to guide us into that truth. So Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. This is the word of the Lord. I'm jumping the gun. Listen, hear the word of the Lord. Sorry, hear the word of the Lord. It will be the word of the Lord. It is. Anyway, here we go. All right. Verse 1, and as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested Peter and John. They put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who'd heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they set them in the midst, in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Let's pray together. Father, open our hearts and our eyes to see, believe the gospel. Help us not to leave this room and forget what we heard. Let us remember, remember your word, 
Let us remember your kindness and your grace and your mercy to us in Christ. And may you change us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We do believe in the work of the Holy Spirit here. So I do pray the Spirit moves now and draws us closer to your heart, O God. We love you and we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. You know, it's hard to find anyone in our culture today who doesn't have an opinion about Jesus. It's almost like everybody wants to take a stab at that question from Matthew 16 that Jesus asked, you know, who do you say that I am? It seems like everybody has their two cents on who they believe Jesus to be. You know, oftentimes these opinions of Jesus are reductionistic. You know, they focus more on uh, those aspects of Jesus that we like, and they leave out those aspects of Jesus that don't sit as well with us from the Gospels. Some tend to reduce Jesus down to this good teacher. Some reduce him down to a good prophet. Some tend to reduce Jesus down to a wise sage or a cuddly teddy bear. Or some tend to reduce Jesus down to simply a social justice warrior, a liberator of sorts. Some reduce Jesus down to a lunatic. Some reduce him down to a judgmental, temperamental, insecure cult leader. And on and on the list could go. But oftentimes, many of us, we tend to Thomas Jeffersonize Jesus. What I mean by that is, you know, Thomas Jefferson's famous for a lot of things, mostly because he was in Hamilton. Um, but one of the things he's famous for is the Jefferson Bible. I'm not familiar with the Jefferson Bible, but uh, Thomas Jefferson literally took a King James Bible and he cut out the miracles of Christ. He cut out the sayings that didn't sit well with him about from Jesus those that were too radical, he cut them all out, and then he pasted together what was left to create his own testament of Jesus. It's known as the Jefferson Bible. Now, none of us and most people in our culture are not literally cutting apart the Bible and piecing together the pieces that we like and creating our own testament, but we do tend to metaphorically do that in our minds and in our hearts. We create our own Jefferson Bibles, in a sense. But when we come to this portion of our vision statement for this morning that we desire to make the real Jesus known, what's implicit in that statement is that there's a reality of something called a false Jesus, right? I mean, if we want to make the real Jesus known, we're assuming out there there are false Jesuses. So if we want to make the real Jesus known, the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus that is very much alive and real and working and moving among us today, then we need to know what the scriptures say about this Jesus. We need to learn of Jesus from his word. And in order for us to most effectively make the real Jesus known, we must possess affections for and be students for and of his word, the Bible. So as a people who delight in God's word, let us delight in Acts 4 this morning to teach us more about who this real Jesus is and how we make him known. So just to give you some context of where we land here in Acts chapter 4, in the previous chapter, Acts chapter 3, Peter and John, they're now filled with the Holy Spirit, they heal a guy. This man had been lame from birth. He'd been lame for 40 years. Verse 22 of our text for this morning tells us. And he asked Peter and John for money. And I love the response from Peter in chapter three. He says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. 
mean, you want to talk about like the ultra like one liner like mic drop moments. It's like I can't give any money, but hey, get up and walk. Um, I mean, it's pretty incredible. It's pretty amazing. And the guy's healed. And, and Peter and John begin to explain to those who had witnessed this miracle that it happened because of Jesus. And in the middle of this preaching in Acts chapter 4, at the beginning, they get arrested. And this group of Jewish leaders that includes Sadducees, which ironically, they deny the resurrection. They ask Jesus a lot of questions about the resurrection. Anyway, they don't like what these guys are saying, what Peter and John are saying, because they're teaching on the resurrection. So they have them arrested. Arrested by leaders who don't like the content of their message. They're thrown in jail overnight. And I love verse 4. It says, but many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. You know, the religious leaders, they put the spokespeople of God's word in chains. But as Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2.9, the word of God is not bound. Right? They're in jail. People are still becoming Christians. It's amazing. And so what was 3,000 people at the end of Acts chapter 2, 3,000 men at the end of Acts chapter 2, has now become 5,000 men, not counting women and children, by the end or middle here of Acts chapter 4. I mean, thousands of people trusting in Christ for their salvation. The next day, the entire Jewish ruling council is convened. It's called the Sanhedrin sometimes in the scriptures. And they bring Peter and John to stand before them and give an account of Quote, what they say, what is this power or name that you're working these miracles in? And it's an interesting scene. You know, it's almost the exact same scene of this sham trial of Jesus, right? Sanhedrin, Caiaphas, Annas, they're all there just as they were with Christ at his trial. And these entities and names that are associated with Christ are now putting two more guys on trial for following Christ, for preaching Christ, And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit in verse 8, begins to unpack for them the content and the source of their miracle-working power. You know, these uneducated Galilean fishermen, they look at these educated, powerful forces in the Roman and Jewish world, and they boldly and courageously make the real Jesus known. These leaders are astonished in verse 13. They ask them to leave the council chamber so they can talk a little bit about what they're going to do. And they can't deny the miracle. And they say as much in verse 16. And even in verse 14, it looks like the guy who'd been healed is actually with them in the council chamber. So they're looking at the guy who'd just been healed. They can't deny what had happened. So they warn them not to speak anymore. To which Peter and John basically say, yeah, we're not, we're not going to do that. Uh, We're not going to listen to you. And they send these guys out, Peter and John, finding no way to punish them. And there are three questions from this text that we're going to unpack this morning. And the first question is this, who is the real Jesus? Who is the real Jesus? So let's start by looking at Peter's monologue a little more in detail, starting in verse 8. Now, keep in mind before we read this. What Peter gives here is not an exhaustive description of Jesus, but it's a sufficient description of Jesus. You read through the Gospels, there are a lot more things about Christ that Peter does not cover here. But for his purposes and our purposes this morning, it's like Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, of the first things of importance I delivered to you. And then he lists like three things, all right? There's a lot more Paul preached on, but these are the things of first importance. Right, of first importance when it comes to Christ. 
It's kind of the same thing here. Sufficient, not exhaustive, all right? So let's keep that in mind as we read. So who is the real Jesus? First, Jesus was a real human being. He was a real human being. Look at verse eight. Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Let's stop right there for just a second. It may feel like a no-brainer that Jesus was a real human being. I mean, you're like, yeah, I mean, I know. Um, but he was fully a man. He had a real name. He was from a real town built from brick and dirt and sand. He was born into a real physical body. He was knit together in a real physical womb. He had a real physical brain, brain, brain <laughs> or whatever, that learned real historical facts about the world. He had real physical brothers and sisters. He ate and drank real physical bread and wine. He cried real tears, bellowed real laughs, felt real emotions, and poured out real blood. He was a real human being. Now, sometimes as believers, or at least for myself, I find it not too difficult to believe that Jesus is the Son of God on the back end of salvation, to believe that he rose from the dead, that he worked miracles, that he accomplished my salvation, our salvation, that he sits now at the right hand of the Lord. Sometimes on the back end of believing in Christ, those things tend to be easier to believe than the fact that Jesus was a real physical human being, Right? He's made like us in every respect, yet without sin. It's hard for me sometimes to believe that, than that he's the son of God. But it's eternally crucial and important to believe that he was a real man. Now, if Jesus were not made like us in every respect to our humanity, yet without sin, he could not truly be our high priest. He could not be our representative. He could not be our substitute. You know, he could not be the second Adam succeeding where the first Adam had failed. He could not have the empathy we need him to have to sit with us in moments of suffering and grief. You know, becoming fully human, he's able to comfort us to the uttermost through the Spirit, for he himself has felt our pain. He himself has shared our sorrows. He's experienced our grief. So Jesus was a real human being, flesh and blood, sinless human being. Second, the real Jesus was crucified. He's crucified. Verse 10, Peter's preaching, whom you crucified, he tells these leaders. Now the crucifixion must be included in making the real Jesus known. For it was on the cross that Christ bore the punishment, the penalty for our sin before our God. If we seek to make the real Jesus known, substitution must be present in our message. Now, the cross was the central component of the teachings of Jesus. He foretold his coming death at least three times, maybe more that are not recorded for us. Central components of the teaching of his followers. I mean, Paul tells us that the cross of Christ in 1 Corinthians 1 is folly to those who are perishing, but for those who are being saved, it's the power of God. You know, for as Jesus hung on the cross, bleeding out for the sins of his people, he was demonstrating in his greatest moment of weakness the power of God that was accomplishing our salvation. Third, the real Jesus was resurrected. It's resurrected. 
The resurrection is the central component of our faith. And without the resurrection, Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, 17, says our faith is futile and we're still in our sins. The resurrection demonstrated God's approval of the work of Christ, that even the throes of death could not hold him down, but God raised him up. And it demonstrates Christ's authority over all the works of the kingdom of darkness and Satan himself. You know, without the resurrection, the story of Jesus is simply a tragic account of a disillusioned man who made great claims and taught impressive things, but in the end was simply a crazy man talking crazy talk. The resurrection, the physical, bodily, real, flesh and blood resurrection of Jesus Christ must be central in any conversations we have about Christ. If the resurrection is a sham, our faith is a sham, our preaching is pointless, we have no hope of resurrection ourselves, Jesus was a liar, our faith is worthless, we're still in our sins, anyone who's died ever in Christ before is in hell, and so let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. There's no point anymore if the resurrection is not real. The real Jesus rose from the dead, and in making known the real Jesus, we must proclaim this truth. Fourth, the real Jesus is the foundation in everything we believe. And he's the cornerstone to quote Psalm 118, which Peter quotes here in verse 11. He's the foundation in two ways. He's the only source of our physical hope in life. You know, this account of Acts 3 and 4 of the power in the name of Jesus, I mean, it shows that physical miracles still happen, that people can and are still literally healed by Jesus, right? He's our physical hope in this life. But secondly, he's also the source of our spiritual hope in eternity. I mean, verse 12, famous verse, there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, Jesus is, one, is not one of many ways to find God. Let's get that postmodern thought out of our minds. He's not one of many ways. Like God's on this apex of a mountain and all these ways lead up to him. That's not what the Bible teaches. It rather teaches that if we're gonna make the real Jesus known, we, didn't, we need to make known the exclusivity of the claims of Christ. That he is the only way to God, to know God. Now, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. You know, Jesus is the most inclusive yet exclusive person that has ever lived. You now, he's inclusive in that all are welcome and invited to find salvation in him. The wall of hostility has been broken down, right, between Jew and Gentile, Ephesians chapter 2. And at the same time, the way of salvation to God is exclusive. It's one way. Through faith in the redemptive work of God in Jesus Christ in that way only. And if we're to make the real Jesus known and the primary way to know the real Jesus is through his word, then we must take what the Bible says about him seriously. And it is a very exclusive claims Jesus made about himself and that his followers make about him as well. Jesus Christ is the only hope of salvation in this life. He's our only hope for eternity. And all that leads us to our second question. How do we make the real Jesus known? How do we do it? I'm sorry, how do we know the real Jesus? Jumping ahead. How do we know the real Jesus? If we desire to make him known, how do we know him? 
First, primarily, as we've been doing this morning and we do here every single week, we know the real Jesus through the Bible. Through the Bible. You know, Peter quotes here from Psalm 118, I mentioned to it, he, to undergird his claims about Christ. He's quoting the Bible to undergird who Jesus is. And so we must also let the Bible undergird our claims about who Jesus is. Yeah, I'm a big fan of letting the Bible speak for itself. You know, I think it was Spurgeon. Eric can correct me later if I'm wrong. But I think it was Spurgeon who was the one that said that the Bible is like a lion. You don't defend a lion. You just let it loose and it defends itself, right? Um, I think I love just letting the Bible speak, letting the Bible dictate what we do. And so what does the Bible claim to be itself? You know, not what do I say about the Bible. What does the Bible claim of itself? What does it say about its own existence. Now think about 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that the Bible is breathed out by God, right? It's, the, it's literally the breath of God that we have here. The Bible claims to be directly from the mouth of God, and if God never lies and his word never fails, then we must believe the Bible never lies and the Bible never fails, right? Matthew 24, 35, you know, Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So if God is eternal, if he's everlasting, no beginning and no end, then his word also possesses this eternal quality as well, right? His word is just as much true and existent and authoritative now as it was 2,000 years ago when it was written. You know, oftentimes we read the Bible, in the Bible, something that causes our modern cultural sensibilities to kind of bristle or take a step back a little bit. The problem is not with the scriptures, the problem's with us with us. You know, the response of so many is to rewrite or exclude, to Jeffersonize, again, the scriptures, to fit our own desires, what we want it to be. But as Emmanuel Church, we need to bring ourselves in submission under the word, not standing over it as judge. We're in submission to it, for it is the very word of the Lord, breathed out by him unchanging, authoritative, crucial for our existence as a body and our existence as believers. So we learn to learn of the real Jesus in the Bible in two ways, two ways, kind of subpoints to that question. One, we study the Bible individually, individually. We must daily feast on the words of God in the scriptures. You know, if man does not live on bread alone, which Jesus quotes to Satan when he's being tempted in Matthew 4. It's a quotation from Deuteronomy. If man does not live on bread alone, but on the very word that comes from the mouth of God, then we as Christ followers should see feasting on the Bible as even more important than physical nourishment. That our health and vitality as Christians does not come primarily from taking care of our bodies. That's important, all right? That's important. We're whole beings but that is subservient to taking care of our souls, to feeding our souls, feasting, gorging ourselves on the buffet of the Bible, all right? And this is a healthy buffet. It's not like Golden Corral, all right? It's a healthy buffet of the Bible. <laughs> I like Golden Corral, but we can talk about that later. Um, so we study it individually. We study it individually. I hope that doesn't, is not a knock on me, but whatever. But also, second, we study the Bible corporately, corporately. You know, one of the gifts of God's grace to us and our understanding of the word is the church. It's the church. It's the body of Christ. 
and not simply the people here at Emmanuel Church, although we are very helpful to one another, but voices in the church for the past 2,000 years. We don't want to be cultural snobs, quote C.S. Lewis. We want to listen to those men and women who've come before us, who have dedicated their lives to helping us understand the word of the Lord. It's this great cloud of witnesses we have, so to speak, that help us gauge the word of God. But let's talk about how we study the scriptures here together at Emmanuel Church. Let's talk about us for just a second. And I'm going to use kind of concentric circles here to kind of go from larger to smaller. The first one is obviously the worship gathering, right? The worship gathering, or what I call where we hear the gospel proclaimed, the worship gathering. You know, each week we come into this room and we hear God's word sung and we hear God's word preached and we hear God's word prayed and we hear it read. You know, we're commanded not to neglect meeting together, right? We're commanded to continue and be consistent in meeting together. So we come together not simply to be reminded of timeless truths in God's word, but to encourage each other to keep the faith. To hold on a little longer by God's grace through the spirit in you. Just hold on to endure, to persist in our pursuit of Christ. That's the first circle. Second, shrinking it a little more, we participate in gospel communities or small groups if you're new to Emmanuel Church. Gospel communities where we digest the gospel. We mull it over, we unpack it. You know, if you're new to Emmanuel Church and aren't familiar with gospel communities, these are geographically based small groups that are designed to help you build community and relationships. And most of our GCs, they eat together, they pray for one another, they work through some sermon-based discussion questions to put boots on the ground to what we're learning in our worship gathering, take what we hear in the worship gathering and kind of mull it over in our gospel communities. Yeah, I'm pretty convinced that much of our problem in the modern church is not necessarily a content problem. You know, I think we can find, we can literally find great content with a swipe of our fingers on our phone. It's not a content problem. You know, gospel-centered content exists everywhere. I think much of our problem in the modern church is not taking the time to meditate and digest and sit with the content we're taking in, to let it just marinate in us. I'm speaking for myself here. You know, I'm so eager to consume more and more content that I can read something, eager to get to the next thing and forget what I just read five minutes ago. I think our GCs are designed to help us sit with and mull over and think on what we are learning in our worship gatherings. Not to move on to something else, but to sit with it a little longer. Let it marinate in us a little longer, be in our minds a little longer. And one more thing briefly about GCs. If you're new to Emmanuel, or even if you've been here for a while, it's gonna be hard to build relationships, not impossible, but hard, if you're not connected to a gospel community. You know, GCs are neighborhood expressions of Emmanuel Church throughout our city, and we don't do a lot at this address. We do some things. We don't do a lot in this building. A lot of what we do is in homes, in neighborhoods around our city. We don't have a lot of programming happening here at Emmanuel Church, 6400 Crestwood, 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 Crestwood Boulevard. Much of the activity happens with people living life beside you in your neighborhoods, in your communities. So if you're trying to get connected here and you haven't yet participated in a gospel community, I encourage you to do that. That's where relationships are really flourishing in our body or in those small entities that exist throughout our city. 
And then the smaller concentric circle here, kind of closing these circles, are what we call DNA groups. DNA groups. You know, people, this, these are places where the gospel is remembered. Remembered. You know, as I stated briefly last week, if you're with us, these are gender-based groups of three to five individuals who come together regularly for the purpose of confessing sin, accountability, caring for one another. You know, I say gospel remembered here, not because we don't remember the gospel in our worship gatherings and in our GCs, but I find that it's in those moments of vulnerability and authenticity where you're laying your soul bare before one another and just bringing out all the worst of the worst in one another because you need to bring it into the light. I find it's in those moments that we need to remember the gospel the most, right? To have a brother or sister sit across from you and look you in the eyes after you've just confessed sin that you are ashamed of and look at you and say, in Christ you're forgiven, go and sin no more. They're not arbitrating, arbitrating, whatever. They're not giving you that forgiveness. They're reminding you of that forgiveness, right? That Christ has forgiven you. Absolving's the word. They're not absolving you. They're reminding you of your absolution. DNA groups are not birthed overnight. Trust is not birthed overnight, right? Normally, DNA groups are an overflow of relationships that already exist in gospel communities. And they're important. You know, we confess our sins for he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1, 9. We confess our sins, bring things into the light because that's where they lose their power. So DNA groups are very, very important. So, we know the real Jesus through his word, the Bible. Second, this is gonna feel a little subjective, but hang with me. Second, we know the real Jesus through our intimacy with him. Our intimacy with him. Very briefly, you know, I find it interesting in Acts 4 that verse 13, these religious leaders point out that Peter and John are uneducated common men, or in other words, they weren't formally trained in ways of the Torah, hadn't been a seminary, didn't have any degrees or accolades, but in spite of that, in verse 14, they can't deny they've been with Jesus, right? I mean, literally, they've been with Jesus. There was also this sense that they had been with Christ, that they knew him. You know, I found in my own life, and I've seen in the life of the church, that those that possess, oftentimes, the disposition of Christ are not those with degrees in theology, They're not those who spent years at the academy pouring over tomes, old writings from Puritans or reformers or church fathers. But oftentimes, those I've encountered who truly embody what it means to love and follow Jesus are those who faithfully, morning after morning, day after day, crack open their Bibles and humbly ask the Lord to teach them about himself. They take what he says, they meditate upon what he says, and then they live out what he says. Degrees and knowledge do not translate into intimacy. You know, I can know a lot of facts about my wife, but that's a big difference from intimately knowing my wife, right? But intimacy is far better than just knowledge and facts. Knowledge and facts are good, no doubt. But we desire to be close with Christ, not just know things about him. You know, I think about this lady named Sarah Freshour. Uh, when I got to Johnson Ferry when I first came on staff, and 
You know, it didn't take long to identify Miss Sarah as one of those women who walked with Christ, just walked with him. She's in her 80s. She was widowed years before. I remember the first time I met her, I was about to preach for the first time at Johnson Ferry. I'm like losing my mind. My nerves are all over the place. And she found me. And she told me that during the services, she would go into our pastor's study and kind of get alone. And she would pray for those involved in the service that morning. And literally every single week, she would do this. I mean, she found, found me every time I would preach just to remind me that she'd been praying for me. And just the aroma of Christ just oozed off of her. I mean, you spend five minutes with a lady and you're like, this lady has been with Christ. She's been with the Lord. And when she would tell me that she'd been praying for me, I knew for a fact that the power of God was ready to pounce through his word on all those people in the hearing of the gospel. She had no formal training, no accolades, no degrees, just time with Christ in the stillness of a conference room. She would sit with Jesus Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and pray that he would reveal himself to her and pray for those involved that he would reveal himself through us. I mean, give me that all day, right? It's in the stillness and the recesses of the quiet places that intimacy is born. If you can't get quiet, you may never have intimacy with Christ. Find those places. Find that time to sit with God's word and let him reveal himself to you in his word by the spirit. I could spend more talking about that, but I don't have time. And then our last question, last question here. What does it mean to make the real Jesus known? What does it mean to make the real Jesus known? First, four things. First, Making Jesus known involves using our mouths. Involves using our mouths. And that may sound really self-explanatory, but there's a saying out there, and it's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. I don't know if he actually said it, but it says, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words, right? I mean, you've probably heard that before. And I get the sentiment, all right? I get it. You know, live an exemplary Christ-exalting life, and then if you have to, when people notice your life, explain to them that, you know, I, I know Jesus, that's why I'm different, and I get that, but how often is that saying used as a reason not to share the gospel, as a reason to hide behind my fear, just waiting for people to approach me so that I don't have to approach them? You know, I found that if those times where I'm like, I'll just live differently, and if anybody approaches me, then I'll mention Christ. I find that tactic doesn't too, work too well for me because nobody ever approaches me. They don't. And we don't see this tactic in the Bible, particularly in our verses for today. And look at verse four. You know, it takes hearing to believe, right? And Peter and John had literally just healed a guy. I mean, if there's not a preach the gospel of necessary use words moment, healing a guy would be that, right? Guys standing right there, but it's not until these witnesses hear the gospel explained that they believe. They believe. Verse 17, Peter and John boldly declare that they cannot stop speaking of what they've seen and heard. Verse 20, the punishment is they're commanded not to speak about Christ, talk about him, to preach about him. Making the real Jesus known involves using words. It involves our mouths. And then on the back end of that, second, 
Making the real Jesus known takes courage. It takes courage. And we all feel the tinge of self-doubt and fear when we think about taking, talking to others about Jesus. What if they ask me a question I don't know? You know, what if they reject me? What if they think I'm a bigot or closed-minded or a fool? I get all of that. I felt those things on occasion as well. But it's in those moments where we see the Spirit of God working most actively in us, those places of weakness and of fear. I mean, Peter, literally a few months before Acts 4, he's denying he even knows Jesus before a servant girl as Jesus is about to be crucified on the cross. I mean, in that day and age, servant girls had literally no power at all. And yet he cowers in fear, not even claiming to know who Jesus is. And then here we have G Peter and John now standing before the most powerful men in Judaism who recently had murdered their Lord, boldly and courageously making the real Jesus known. And verse eight shows us the source of this courage. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of God that makes us brave. It's the Spirit of God that gives us courage. I mean, even if we are rejected before men, which Jesus said would happen, shouldn't surprise us. The king of the universe is on our side and he will never leave us or forsake us. He'll never reject us. Making the real Jesus known takes courage. Third, making the real Jesus known produces praise. Produces praise. The people are praising God for the working of this miracle in verse 21. Well, Peter and John, when they go back and report to their friends later on in chapter four, they burst out in worship together. You know, when Christ is on our lips, our hearts are filled with joy. And when our hearts are filled with joy, Christ is on our lips. We worship on account of the work he is doing in us and through us. Making the real Jesus known produces praise. And then lastly, fourth, making the real Jesus known brings about the inexplicable. Brings about the inexplicable. I love how this account ends in verse 22. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. In other words, this guy who couldn't walk for 40 years is now standing here fully healed. Yeah, we can't explain that. It's truly a miracle. You know, I've been in the midst of a miracle with my dad over the last month, from literally breathing dying breaths to healed almost overnight. And that's the word the doctor kept using and talking to us. It's inexplicable. It's inexplicable. You want to call it a miracle? I don't know, but it's inexplicable. Can't be explained what happened. And in the midst of the inexplicable, I confess to you that I've been exposed in my unbelief and my unbelief that God still brings about the inexplicable, that God still operates in the same ways he did in the scriptures, that the God of Acts is the God of Emmanuel Church. I mean, do we believe that? I mean, do we believe that Jesus still moves? I mean, do, believe, do we believe that Jesus still heals? Do we believe that Jesus still brings dead souls to life? Do we believe that Jesus can bring back your wayward sons and daughters? Do you believe that Jesus can heal your broken marriage? Do you believe that Jesus can heal your diseases and rid you of your afflictions? 
Do you believe Jesus still loves you? Do you believe God's mercies are still new every morning, even in spite of what you did last night? Do you believe Jesus still desires to use you, that you haven't disqualified yourself? Do you believe Jesus is better than anything this world can offer you? Do we believe it? Do we believe God can still do miracles among us? The real Jesus can do those things. He can do those things. He's the only one we desire to make known in this city and in the nations. Let's pray together. Father, we believe, help our unbelief. I pray that for myself. I pray that for us as a people. Do the inexplicable among us. I don't know what that is, but I want you to do it. I want you to do it. Father, may you give us the words to speak. May you give us the courage to utter them. May you give us the praise when we utter them. And may you do mighty works among us. Not for our glory, O God, not for our glory, but for yours, O Lord. We try so often to explain you to put you in categories and boxes when you want to shatter those in so many ways. Forgive us for constraining you. Do something mighty among us. Bring restoration, bring reconciliation, restore, heal. Bring life to dead people. Bring people from the pit of sin and set them free by the power of your spirit in Christ. Jesus is better. May we desire the better things. In Christ's name we pray, amen.